The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Do we need to rethink our understanding of reality? On this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times, we're unpacking this fundamental question. We're joined by cognitive psychologist Donald Hoffman, who discusses his extensive work on evolutionary game theory, and argues that our reality operates like a desktop user interface. You, you could not frame a true description of the world in that language. It's not possible. So it's not that we get it off a little bit here or there. It's that this whole thing is just the wrong framework for describing reality. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Donald Hoffman. I'm Don Hoffman. I'm a professor of cognitive sciences at the University of California at Irvine. And I also have a joint appointment in logic and philosophy of science. And I study a a few things. I study visual perception, both how the human brain works and also mathematical models of how we see. I look a little bit at artificial intelligence. How can we build robotic vision systems that can see and and build artificial intelligence kinds of, of systems? I look also at perception from an evolutionary point of view. If we evolved and our senses were shaped by natural selection, the question is, were we shaped to see reality as it is, or would evolution shape us for something else? And, and so I, I look at that. So in a number of interesting areas. <clears throat> I was wondering whether we could um, discuss a bit about your um, idea that perception is not like a window, but instead it's more like a 3D desktop. Um, right. Does that mean that there is nothing outside um, the mind, or does it just mean that we right. um, get we perceive something in an indirect way? Right. So most of my colleagues um, in cognitive neuroscience believe that our senses were shaped by natural selection that we evolved, and that the selection pressures are such that those creatures that saw the world more accurately had a competitive advantage over those who saw less accurately. And so they were more likely to pass on their genes that coded for the accurate perceptions. And so the result is after thousands of generations, we're the offspring of those who saw the world more accurately. And so we can be pretty confident that when I see tables and chairs and the sun and the moon and so forth, that I'm seeing reality as it is. No one believes we see all of reality, of course. We only see the parts that we need to see. Uh, but that 
the parts that we do see, we're seeing truthfully. And so I've looked at that from the point of view of the mathematics of evolution, the evolutionary game theory. And we can actually run simulations to see what happens and we can prove theorems. And we've, we've done both. And the bottom line is that the probability, if our sense is evolved and we're shaped by natural selection, the probability that we see reality as it is, is zero. And that, that means not simply that I, you know, I don't quite see the shape of a chair correctly or I don't quite see the colors correctly. It's, it's much deeper than that. The problem is that the very language of space and time and physical objects is the wrong language to describe objective reality. You, you could not frame a true description of the world in that language. It's not possible. So it's not that we get it off a little bit here or there. It's that the, this whole thing is just the wrong framework for describing reality. So that seems so counterintuitive and so out there that I think a metaphor is needed to help understand how it might be working. And the metaphor I like is um, the user interface on, you know, the desktop interface on your computer. If you're um, writing an email and the icon for that email is blue and rectangular and in the middle of your screen, does that mean that the email itself, the file in your computer is blue, rectangular, and in the middle of the computer? Well, of course not. Anybody who thought that misunderstands the point of the desktop interface. It's not there to show you the truth in this metaphor. The truth would be the circuits and the voltages and magnetic fields. All that complexity, most of us don't want to know about that. That's really nasty. If you had to toggle voltages to craft an email, your friends wouldn't hear from you. It's just too hard. So what evolution has done for us is it's evolved us sensory systems, touch, smell, sight, sound, hearing, all of this, all these sensory interfaces as a user interface that the purpose is to hide reality, completely to hide reality, just like your desktop interface on your computer is there to hide the circuits. You don't want to know about the circuits. And yet it allows you to control the circuits, right? By using icons and dragging them and clicking and so forth. You can control the reality without knowing anything at all about it. And that's what evolution did. Three-dimensional space, is your desktop. It's a three-dimensional desktop, not just a two-dimensional desktop. And the icons are three-dimensional, not just flat. They're what we call physical objects. So tables and chairs and spoons and forks, these are icons that evolution has shaped to tell us about fitness payoffs and how to get them. So it's all about fitness. Even space itself is about fitness. The distance between me and an apple 10 meters away versus 10 miles away is telling me that it will cost me fewer calories to get the apple 10 meters away. It'll cost me a lot of calories to get the apple 10 miles away. Probably I should go for the apple that's 10 meters away. So even space itself is representing fitness payoffs and fitness costs. And so, so evolution, in short, has shaped us with a user interface that hides reality on purpose. Where, you know, purposes in quotes. Evolution is just a process. But, but it, the effect of the, per, of the process is really to hide reality so that, um, so that you're, you're, you're not um, distracted by it and you, you, you can control reality without actually knowing what it is. So now the question that you asked is, what is that reality? And I mean, the, the right answer is, I don't know, right? If the very predicates, the, the language of our perceptions, according to our, one of our best theories, you know, evolution by natural selection, if the very language of our perceptions is the wrong language to describe 
reality, then it's a tough problem. I, what I'm doing as a scientist is I'm suggesting that, well, I'm trying to understand a specific scientific problem, which is, for me, it's, it's called the hard problem of consciousness. And I'm trying to think of a theory of reality that will allow me to solve this hard problem of consciousness. The problem is this. We have a lot of interesting data that gives us correlations between certain kinds of brain activity and certain conscious experiences that we have. So, for example, we know that if, if I take a powerful magnet called a, trans mag, a transcranious magnetic stimulator and touch it to a part of the skull that's just next to an area called V4, and if I inhibit my neural activity in that area, immediately all color will drain from the left part of my visual world. I'll just see shades of gray. I'll still see color in the right part of the visual world, but not in the left. Then you turn off the magnet and color comes flowing back in. So there's this very interesting correlation between interference with neural activity in the, in the, the right hemisphere and loss of certain kind of conscious experience in the left visual world. We can do that with motion. If I put this stimulator over an area called V5, I can turn off my ability to experience motion in the left visual field. And, and it turns out that in, in the science of, you know, cognitive neuroscience, we've discovered scores, maybe hundreds of these kinds of correlations. So correlations are the raw data. This brain activity is correlated with that conscious experience. And, of course, correlations are not a theory. Rooster crows are correlated with sunrises. But that's not a theory. For example, does a rooster crow cause a sunrise? Well, no. That's, we would tend to think it might go the other way. But, but it's hard to go from correlations to a genuine theory of what's causing it. You might say, well, so, for example, we know that brain activity that we can measure with EEG, electroencephalograms, we can predict your choices that you'll make in certain cases, your free will choices, um, seven seconds before you can tell me what you're going to choose. So here again, brain activity is cleanly correlated with your experience seven seconds later of a choice that you're making. So here again, we have this correlation. And in this case, you might say, well, okay, here clearly the theory is the brain activity came first, the experience of feeling like you had a free will choice came a few seconds later, so clearly the brain activity had to cause it, and that's too quick. Another example, counterexample is, if you look at a train station, a bunch of people assemble at the train station, a few minutes later the train appears. Did the people coming to the train station cause the train to appear? No, they didn't. So even though the correlation is tight, Every time a group of people appears, a train appears a few minutes later, it's not the case that the people appearing cause the train to appear. There's some third entity, namely a train schedule, that's coordinating both. So we have to be very, very careful. When we have correlations, that's not the same thing as a theory. And then the final example is, um, you might say, well, look, when you actually take that magnet and stimulate area V4 or inhibit it, you're intervening. And by intervening, we can actually figure out what's causing what. Right? So you turn off V4, color goes away. Surely that shows that V4 causes the color experience. And that's also too fast. If I'm in a virtual reality game like Grand Theft Auto and I've got a steering wheel, 
I can say, look, I can intervene. I can turn the steering wheel to the left. That will make the car turn to the left. Therefore, the, the steering wheel is real, and it really does have an effect on a real car. No, it's not. There's, again, a hidden reality of diodes and resistors, all the circuits, that's mediating this. It only, we only have the fiction of intervening and a fiction of causality. So the problem we have in the hard problem of consciousness is this. Scientists have gotten dozens, maybe hundreds, of these tight correlations. We do not have a theory. We cannot explain why neural activity is correlated with conscious experiences. In particular, we cannot for a single conscious experience, like say, by conscious experience, I mean something really simple, like having a headache, experiencing color, the taste of vanilla. The theories that are proposed are basically only believed by the graduate students of the professor who proposes them. And, and no theory that's been proposed can even predict or, or specify the conditions for a single experience, like the taste of vanilla. If, so if you think that neural activity causes the taste of vanilla, precisely what neural activity is causing the taste of vanilla and how does it do it, no one has any idea. Or if, if they say that um, neural activity is identical to the taste of vanilla, then as a scientist I want to say, okay, tell me with mathematical precision what exactly is the, the neural activity that's identical to vanilla and why is it identical? I mean, it's, anybody can say anything. Was like, you know, I can say the moon is identical to, to blue cheese and just stipulate it. Presumably, you need to give me some reason why I should believe in the identity. So they can't specify the identity and, and much less say why the identity should be plausible. So that's the problem that we've got. It's, it's a really deep, open, scientific problem. And it's very personal. We all have conscious experiences. We would like to understand what's... And we also, we also have brains. We'd like to understand what's happening here. What's, why, are, why are these correlations there? And so this theory of evolution that I mentioned that says we don't see reality as it is has a really strange consequence. It means that when I see a physical object like an apple, effectively, I'm creating that apple as a data structure in my interface, much like if I'm in a virtual reality and I I'm, have a headset on, and every time I turn over here, I will see something. I'm rendering that in real time. I see an apple. As I go over here, um, I'm no longer rendering. I, you know, I, the, the apple's gone. But as soon as I turn over there again, I will again create a three-dimensional apple. So I'm saying this doesn't just happen in virtual reality. It happens in everyday life. I look over here. I see an apple. I'm literally creating that data structure because now I, I'm... Effectively, an apple is a description of fitness payoffs and how to get them. It's all about fitness. That's the key thing. Evolution is all about fitness. But that means that the objects don't exist as pre-existing things. When I see an apple, we like to think, well, I'm, that's because there really is an apple. And I'm saying, no, no, there's some other reality out there. But just like the blue icon on your desktop doesn't re resemble the true file, the apple does not resemble anything in objective reality. It's an abstract data structure that's just telling you how to act to get fitness payoffs. Here's the kicker. When you look inside your brain, inside your skull, and you see a brain, that's also just a data structure that you're creating. Neurons are just data structures. They don't exist. And this is the weird stuff. I don't have a brain when no one looks. And some of my colleagues would say, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> you don't have a brain. Uh, but but the, the point of this is that, that we create any physical object that we see 
in the moment that we see it. And so neurons don't exist when they're not perceived. Therefore, neurons could not be the source of our conscious experiences. In fact, space-time itself is just your data structure. So the idea that space-time exists and has existed for 14 billion years as a pre-existing stage in which the drama of life plays out is also deeply wrong. Space-time itself is just a data structure that we create. So what is reality? It's a long answer to your question, but the answer is I don't know, but I'm trying to come up with a reality that would allow me to solve this hard problem of consciousness. So if the brain is just a symbol that we create when we look, and I'm trying to understand how consciousness is related to it, if I start with a theory in which consciousness is fundamental, and I have to do it scientifically, say, what do I mean precisely by consciousness with mathematical precision? And, and I have this theory that I call conscious agents, in which conscious agents interact. It's like a the, the proposal is that reality is a vast social network. It's a, like a Twitterverse or Facebook. So it's a big social network of conscious agents. That's the reality. They're not in space and time. They're, they're just consciousnesses interacting with each other. As they interact, they uh, are passing experiences back and forth. And there's, it's, it's an infinite Twitterverse, an infinite set of consciousnesses out there in this, in this um, big social universe. Social, you know, yeah, social network universe. And any single conscious agent in that network would be overwhelmed trying to understand all of it. Like if you were trying to understand Twitter, there's tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users, billions of tweets. How are you going to try to understand what's going on in the Twitterverse? Well, you can't. But what you can do is you can use visualization tools. Suppose I have a visualization tool that compresses it all down, shows you what's trending in this city and what's trending over there. So you compress it all down and maybe into something that you can see through a headset so that you can actually, uh, well, here's the Twitterverse in, in London, here's the Twitterverse in Edinburgh and so forth, and here's what's, what's going on, here's what's trending. Then you could sort of visualize it. That's what evolution did for us. The reality is this big, vast social network of interacting conscious agents. Each individual agent would be overwhelmed because it's infinite social network. And so what we call the physical world just is our visualization tool. That's what we have. So we've mistaken. So this is all a big visualization tool. Space, time, and physical objects are the way we visualize our interaction with this vast um, universe of yeah, social network universe. I'll give you one concrete example to really bring it home. When you look at your face in the mirror, all you see literally is skin, hair, and eyes. But what you know firsthand that you don't see in the mirror is the whole universe of your conscious experiences, your hopes, your desires, your aspirations, your headache, um, the, the sound of music that you're hearing right now, um, your love of, of music, all the stuff that's you, that's a, it's an almost infinitely complicated universe of conscious experiences. All we can see is this. And compared to the vast universe of our conscious experience, this is extremely simple. If I smile, you can guess that I'm happy. I'm feeling some conscious experience. But a smile does not resemble happiness. It's just, it signifies it. And so think about it this way, your face, my face, the, the, the face that you're creating when you look at me is your portal into my conscious experiences. The face that I see when I look at you is my portal into your conscious experiences. It's a portal, but it's very, very small portal. Most of you is left out. You can't see it in the mirror. I can't see it from outside. 
when I look at my cat, the portal is even worse. I mean, I can figure out maybe the cat likes this kind of food and doesn't like that, likes it when I pet, but now I've petted it too much, now I need uh, to stop. When I look at an ant, my interface is really giving up. I have no insight into the conscious agents in this vast network that I'm interacting with. And when I get to what I call a rock, my interface has given up, but it has to give up. I have a finite interface. I'm dealing with an infinite social network. Of course, the interface, that's its purpose, is to throw most of the information away to simplify things and allow me to negotiate with this universe of you know, interacting conscious agents um, without getting overwhelmed. And so, of course, at some point, it's not going to look conscious anymore at all. My interface is giving up. But what we've done is we've mistaken a necessary limitation of our interface as a and we've taken it to be an insight into the fundamental nature of reality. We've assumed that reality fundamentally is unconscious because at the simplest level, our interface is necessarily unconscious. So physicalism is a very simple mistake. This assumption that space-time and matter are fundamental is a simple mistake. We've mistaken a limit of our interface as an insight into objective reality. But it's a, you know, we can we can break out of it. It's 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 a natural mistake, but we could break out of it. So. Okay, so where do you stand um, in relation to panpsychism then? If we if we ended on physicalism, that's the obvious um, kind of opposite theory to to physicalism. So so panpsychism panpsychism is an interesting theory. There are a couple of versions of it, and when I talk to different panpsychists. They, they will say, no, that's not my version. So I'll talk about two different versions of it. That, so in one version, it's more dualist. So an electron really exists, and it really does have physical properties, whether or not it's observed, like position, momentum, and spin. But in addition, it has a unit of consciousness. And when an electron and a proton get together, then somehow the unit of consciousness from the electron and the unit of consciousness from the proton have to interact to create the consciousness of you know, of the two put to coming together, right, into hydrogen, say. So that's, that's one theory. It, it's dualist, and most scientists don't like dualism, right? So, so most scientists would just not even go there. It, it, it may, you know, it's not that it's wrong. It's just that we try to come up with the simplest theory. So another version of panpsychism that some people talk about in some sense is what you would just say, well, what I was already saying, that the fundamental nature of reality just is consciousness. Um, and some panpsychists that I've talked with will, will say, when, when I talk about all these conscious agents, the word agent makes it sound like there's all these selves and personalities and so forth. And, and I'm not trying to imply that. I'm just saying that there are these elementary perceivers that can have experiences and take simple actions. In, in the mathematical model, I don't assume that there's a self. I don't assume intelligence, problem solving, creativity, and memory even. But what I can show mathematically is I can, from the network with these simple conscious agents, I can build networks that simulate selves, that simulate intelligence, that have memories and so forth. So, so that, that version, if, if that's what people mean by panpsychism, then, then it's equivalent to what I'm saying. But I like to just call my theory conscious realism. Because I want to be very, very clear that I'm saying that consciousness is fundamental and I'm proposing, I mean, I don't know what the truth is. I'm just a scientist. I'm just proposing a bold hypothesis that consciousness is fundamental and it's real. 
Now, if that's false, it's false. We'll find out. But the idea of science is to be precise and bold so that we can precisely find out where we're wrong. So I'm making a precise and bold hypothesis, and it's mathematically precise. I've published it. So any scientist can go out there and say, this is what's wrong with the mathematics. But that's the whole goal. Of course, I'm probably wrong. I don't think any scientific theory I've read so far is correct, including general relativity and quantum field theory and so forth. They're brilliant. They're wonderful tools. We should study them. They're the best we've got so far, and they're almost surely deeply wrong. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports, and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. And so the same is true of my theory. I won't say it's brilliant, but I'll say it's probably deeply wrong, at least it's precise. What does it mean that consciousness is real? As real as what? That's, that's a great question. In, this brings up a really important aspect about scientific theories. And it's an aspect of scientific theories that really bothers me. In science, we cannot explain everything. We always, in our theories, we have to say, please grant me these two or three assumptions. We want them as few as possible. But those assumptions are just given. The theory does not explain them. They're like miracles with respect to the theory. And, and the scientist then says, if you will grant me these assumptions, then I can build this really powerful theory. So, for example, grant me space-time and quantum fields. If you'll grant me that, then I can then show you how you know, chemistry and biology and psychology and you know, so forth might arise from that. And so the, the point in any scientific theory is you have to say, I'm proposing... These things are fundamental in the universe. How did they get there? I don't know. I really don't know. Just please grant me that. And in that sense, they're real with respect to the theory. These are the fundamental assumptions about quote-unquote reality that the scientific theory is making. So it's in that sense I'm saying, um, for sake of argument, please grant me that conscious experiences like the taste of vanilla, having a headache, that these are the fundamental furniture of the universe, not space-time and atoms and quarks and so forth. The, the, these raw experiences, as, as experiences, are the fundamental aspect of reality. So for my theory, those are the miracles. Those are the miracles. And then if you grant me that, then I will show how we can create space-time and physical objects as a user interface to this whole vast social network of these conscious experiencers that are having these experiences, where the experiences themselves are taken for granted. But the dynamics about the experiences now is where we can do our science where we can actually have an explanation. How did you get to these ideas? And did you ever believe in the mainstream um, ideas about reality and consciousness? I absolutely believe the mainstream ideas. And I still remember it was uh, 1986 when I was working on a mathematical model of perception with a couple of colleagues, Bruce Bennett and Chaitan Prakash. And we'd work out a mathematical model of, I wasn't really working on the consciousness thing per se, I was working on just how can we get a general theory about what it means to when we're perceiving. 
And it was looking at the mathematics that I suddenly realized that it was suggesting to me that we might not necessarily have to see reality as it is. And that was so stunning I had to sit down. But it took me um, another 20 years before I decided to actually pursue that using um, evolutionary game theory. I began to say, okay, is it really true if, if our senses evolved and we're shaped by natural selection, can I settle this issue? Would natural selection actually favor perceptions that show us the truth? Not all the truth, but some of the truth? Or will natural selection actually drive truth to complete extinction? And then it was stunning to me. I was surprised how the math came out when it actually said for very deep principled reasons that natural selection would drive any true perceptions to complete extinction. So, so it's been... Um, it's not just been an intellectual odyssey, it's been an emotional odyssey. This is upsetting. It's actually upsetting to realize that something I deeply believed all my life is just fundamentally wrong. And so I can understand why people might hear this and go that this is just too crazy. Does it change the way you experience, day, uh, you experience life on a day-to-day -day basis? Very, very slowly. It's been slowly changing. I think And there may be good reason evolutionarily. I mean, evolution, there's no selection pressures for us to know that we don't see the truth, right? If, you're, if you have a user interface and it's working to keep you alive long enough to reproduce, it's doing what it needs to do. There's no selection pressures to also tell you, oh, by the way, this is just a game. You're not, you're not seeing the truth. This is just a user interface. And, and so we deeply believe it. We, in fact, we believe that because we have to take our perceptions seriously, right? If for, we, that we should therefore also take them literally. I mean, one objection people give to me is to say, you know, Don, if, you're, if you think that that train coming down the tracks at 200 miles an hour is just an icon in your interface, why don't you just hop in front of it and after you're dead and this silly theory with you, we'll know that that train was real, it's not just an icon, and it really can kill. And, and I wouldn't jump in front of the train for the same reason I wouldn't drag my blue icon to the trash can icon carelessly. Not because I take the icon literally, the, the file is not blue and rectangular, but I do take the icon seriously. If I drag it to the trash can, I could lose my work. Maybe I've written a book and it's taken me a couple years. I could lose all that work, so I better take the icon seriously, but that does not entitle me to take it literally. And so that's part of human nature. We were inclined to this illogical assumption that because we have to take all of our perceptions seriously, we're entitled to take, to take them literally. The reason we have to take them seriously is evolution shaped them to keep us alive. So if you see a cliff, don't step off. If you see a snake, don't grab it unless you know what you're doing. And if you see a train, don't jump in front. You have to take it seriously, but that does not logically entitle us to take it literally. So as a result, it's not a surprise that even after I've sort of intellectually begun to realize that that's what evolution has done, this is just an interface, it's not the truth, When I'm not, you know, putting on my rational head and thinking about it, I'm just living an everyday life. And so I'm, oh, this is this is the truth, and that's the way it feels. It's been many, many years. I'm slowly starting to have a different set of feelings, like, oh, this is a headset. I'm now rendering that chair. I'm now rendering that light. It's, but it's very, very slow for I me. Mean, usually, I fall back into the normal. I'm just immersed in the truth, but. 
virtual reality is actually helpful to actually spend time in a virtual reality world which you realize, oh yeah, I'm rendering a full 3D world. Now I just deleted that whole 3D world. I'm not rendering it anymore. Oh wow, that's maybe what's also happening in everyday life. The headset, when I take off a virtual reality headset, there's another headset that I've always had on that I didn't know. And it's what I called reality. But it's just another virtual world that evolution programmed into us. And so, but I would say, I would say I'm maybe 98% in, I'm, this is the truth, and 2% of the time now. So it's, you know, after years, it, it, so it doesn't go away easily. And does that affect the way you interact with other people? Does it kind of, um, does it challenge the way you see, you, you communicate with people? What does it mean for our relationships to think that actually what we see isn't what there is? Um, is it harder to trust another person if you think that this is all a mirage and it's just an icon on my desktop? Well, I think that it gives me a, a deeper respect for how much more complicated people are than what we can literally see. We, you know, the, the example I gave of you're seeing your face in the mirror and realizing that the, the range of inferences I can make about what you're feeling and thinking based on your expressions and your body language is really a small fraction of, of who you really are and all the, the richness. I mean, so I, I can just see small nuances of a smile, but there are many, many nuances of feeling happy and bliss that are completely lost on me, uh, that I know exist personally, but I don't know which one you're having. And so one thing I think it does is it makes me really appreciate that um, I shouldn't assume I know what you're really feeling. I should really be careful to engage more and to, to um, you know, talk more. So it, it gives you that kind of perspective. Evolutionary psychology also, well, some work by in cognitive neuroscience and evolutionary psychology also makes me be very, very careful. We, we, we know that in, there's certain split brain patients, they, they've had um, epilepsy um, and that wasn't curable by the available drugs. And so they did a surgery where they cut the brain in half so that the right hemisphere was separated from the left hemisphere. And if the right hemisphere went into an epileptic seizure, maybe the, the left wouldn't go into it. And it, it worked clinically, it, it was very, very helpful. But what we found was we literally cut consciousness in half with a knife. The right hemisphere ends up having, you can show in experiments, you can give it a completely separate content of consciousness. It can be aware of, for example, the word key, whereas the left hemisphere is aware of the word ring, and nobody is aware of the phrase key ring or, or, you know, or the two together. And we find that the personalities are different. The right hemisphere often has a different personality than the left. And that the left, one person, for example, that uh, V.S. Ramachandran study, the left hemisphere believed in God, the right hemisphere was an atheist. Very, very big difference in personalities. And the left hemisphere, as it turns out, likes to make up stories. It's a confabulator, or as Steve Pinker puts it, a baloney generator. And the right hemisphere in many people tends to be a little bit more in tune with reality and also a little bit less happy. So, so that, that kind of knowledge also affects my social relations. It, it affects my relationship with myself. I don't believe most of what I used to think were my true motivations for why I'm behaving the way I do. M much of that is probably just baloney that I'm making up to make myself seem rational and reasonable and a good, nice guy. But then most everybody else is doing the same thing. 
we're really hiding our true motives. And so that's why it's, it's sort of difficult in personal relationships. It's not like we're consciously being disingenuous. It's an automatic self-promotion mechanism that's built into us. And so these kinds of insights that we get from the science, not just from my theory, but from cognitive neuroscience and uh, the split brain operations and so forth, really do begin to affect how I understand people. But, but not to say that I end up with a negative view of people. I think it's, it's just healthier to understand in great, greater depth the complexity of people. I think that it, we, I shouldn't take as much for granted as I used to and shouldn't make as many assumptions about people and why they're behaving as I used to. So people um, now seem even more real to you. That's right. I'm proposing that your consciousness is a fundamental reality in this vast social network of conscious agents. And uh, one thing that comes out in the math is, in my theory, is that when two conscious agents interact, they create a new single conscious agent. And this, so you can have very, very simple agents that have very, very simple, like only two experiences and maybe two actions that they can take. I call them one-bit agents. But when two of these one-bit agents interact, you get a two-bit agent that has maybe four possibilities. And, and by the time you get to me, I don't know how many, you know, billions or trillions or who knows how many. But then think about my two hemispheres. There's evidence that when the corpus callosum is cut, they have separate consciousnesses with potentially separate contents and separate personalities and even separate religious beliefs. But when they're connected with the corpus callosum, there's what I call me there seems to be a single unified person. And so that's another interesting thing that comes out of this is trying to understand this theory opens up the idea that, that, that you're real and that you're also two conscious agents, not just one conscious agent, you're two. And the theory says you're a whole infinite lattice all the way down to these simple one-bit agents going all the way up to the two hemispheres and finally to the one agent that's you. And then the theory leaves open the possibility that, that just in interacting with other conscious agents, other agents are being formed. And, but apparently, I, mean, I, I don't experience that. And it's an interesting thing to, to look at in the mathematical theory. Can, how much can an agent know about the agents that are emerging from its experiences or interactions with other agents? There is empirical data on this. Michael Gazaniga working with these split brain patients, asked or, or talked with a guy, several of them, that had the split brain operation, and he asked the person, does it feel any different now with the split brain operation than it did before? And one, one video I've seen, the person said, absolutely not. It, it feels just the same as it was before. And what we know is that that's the left hemisphere talking. Only the left hemisphere can talk. The right hemisphere can't talk, but it understands language. And we know the left hemisphere is a confabulator. So when I saw that, I was going, okay, well, maybe the left, left hemisphere is just saying, you know, nothing to see here, is trying to make everything papered over. But the right hemisphere typically is not as much of a confabulator. So I asked Gazanica a few weeks ago, what about the right hemisphere? When you ask the right hemisphere, does it also say that there's no difference? And he said, read my book. And he pointed me to, he gave me, actually, he offered me his PDF. And so very, very kindly. I looked in his book. And the answer is yes, the right hemisphere also says that it doesn't notice a difference. That's stunning data. That's some of the most important data that I've ever seen from the split brain stuff. It's saying that the two hemispheres, there are 43 billion neurons in the cortex of the right hemisphere, 43 billion in the left, 
And the right hemisphere is saying, when I got cut off from those 43 billion other neurons, I don't notice a difference. That is a stunning bit of data to, con you know, to use in trying to frame a theory of consciousness. When two consciousnesses interact, how do you create a new consciousness? And how much do the lower level consciousness actually know about the higher level consciousness? Maybe almost nothing. Maybe nothing. In which, in which case, that's a stunning... So you can see the, the possibilities that this whole framework opens up when we take consciousness as fundamental and start looking at the neuroscience data in this new way. It's giving us insights into how we might want to, to constrain our theories of how consciousness works and what happens when consciousnesses interact. It's a completely new way of thinking. So does this mean that um, the two parts of our brain uh, interact a lot more than we think? Or does it mean that um, they are both quite autonomous and they they rep, like, they mirror each other or well, it, it's what does suggesting it like when we're, we're just talking here you know I have a feeling I'm just one person I don't have the feeling of like two really separate individuals that are negotiating and and one is an atheist and one's a believer and one's happy I mean sometimes you might feel a little struggle do I do I want to party tonight or do I want to study I mean there are little and maybe you get little hints of some kind of but most of the time we feel like we're just a single unified thing and yet we have clear evidence that there's two so so I don't know what to say it, it seems like it, it it you know we're both that we're that you are one but that the one that's talking to you right now is not aware of the two separate consciousnesses, and those are probably not aware of the, the consciousnesses underneath them. When I teach a psychology class, I teach Introduction to Psychology um, for freshmen at, at the university. I'll tell them at some point during the course that 99% of all mental processes are unconscious. The way that's normally interpreted is to say that the brain is real, most brain processes don't give rise to consciousness. The ones that give rise to consciousness are really just a tiny fraction, less than 1%. I'm, I'm turning it around the other way. I'm saying it's consciousness all the way down. It's this whole vast social network of conscious agents, but my interface has to simplify things. So I only can see my, my whole network in terms of what I call my body. High levels, I view it in terms of what I call my psychology and my moods. Further on down, I call it my neuroscience, my chemistry, my, my biology, my physics. But those are all my interface just getting more and more giving up at trying to represent what's going on in this vast social network. So all I can do is see myself through my interface description and what I see as a body, which is hiding this vast network of conscious agents, which is all coordinating together to create the single consciousness that's talking to you. So that's, you can see it's a completely different picture of what it is, means to be a human being. And it gives a new sense to what it means to be embodied. I mean, embodied cognition is, I think, important. But this gives a new sense that even our embodiment itself is a picture that we come up with. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.